Good morning, Facebook family. Good morning, church family. I just want to thank you guys for tuning in. How you guys have been extremely faithful in watching all of these live videos um, in lieu of actually attending uh, and being fit and physically present in a church service. And I just want to thank you guys so much for your dedication and your continual uh, participation in these. Um, I am excited to say that this will be the last Sunday that we do not have a physical gathering of people um, starting next Sunday. June 7th, we will be here at the church. We'll be outside, of course, to accommodate for some COVID-19 restrictions that the interior of our building is just capable of meeting. Um, but we will gather together um, at 11 a.m. We're gonna gather together. We're gonna have a devotional type service. We're gonna worship together. Um, and we're just gonna spend some time together as a church family with fellowship. Um, if you want to self-isolate, you're welcome to do that. If you want to hug and pray and, and everything, then you're welcome to do that as well. Um, we want to be very accommodating to those that want a social distance and we want to be very accommodating to those that are tired of being quarantined and social distance and we want to be able to uh, meet and spend time with them as well. So that's going to be next Sunday, June 7th. We're going to meet here. We're just going to say 11 a.m. That gives you time. I know that you're not used to getting up early on a Sunday morning maybe, so that gives you time to sleep in a little bit extra um, and casually get ready and meet us here for a wonderful time of fellowship and worship. Um, and then from then on out, we're going to continue those meetings um, in an outside format, in a missional community format. And we're going to begin to meet um, on people's property, um, in fields, at pavilions, different things. to so just really take the church outside of the building. And I think it's going to be a wonderful experience. So June 7th will be here. Um, look out for the Facebook post to see that. But I want you guys to know that while we're doing this, we are going to continue to operate as the church operates, just without the building. We're going to operate. We're still going to do tithes and offerings. We're going to, you can do that through Tithely. You can do that through the website. You can do that through um, when you actually gather in physical person. You can give your tithes and offerings then. We're still going to worship. We're still going to pray. We're still going to evangelize. We're still going to conduct outreach, and we're still going to be the body um, just without the building for a little while. So this is an exciting time. It's really a time to stretch your understanding of what Christianity is and to show that Christianity with the building is great, but it's a privilege. Christianity without the building is a necessity and a command of God. So we're gonna go with the necessity and the command of God, and we're just gonna see what God has to offer um, to our church body through this season. So with that being said, I wanna thank you guys again for being here. And I just wanna tell you guys that um, normally I'm on top of this sort of thing, but this morning I wasn't. Um, today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is the anniversary or the day that we celebrate the reception of the Holy Spirit with the apostles in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came as a mighty rushing wind and uh, they were baptized and that tongues of fire set upon each of them and you know the real work and push of the gospel which you see at the beginning of the book of Acts happened. Today is the day that we celebrate that and so I just want to tell you guys that today's a wonderful day. We celebrate the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the upper room and the same things that were available to them are available to us. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, but anyway, it's a great day, one of my favorite days. Normally, if we wouldn't have had the coronavirus, I may have tried to do an all-night prayer um, last night into this morning. Um, we've done those in the past, and they're wonderful just to kind of celebrate the same uh, move that was with the apostles. But like I said, I was kind of... Uh, taken off guard. I didn't have my day straight. I was thinking it was next weekend. But anyway, happy Pentecost Sunday. Um, today we're going to start doing something a little bit different. Um, 
We're gonna start kind of moving in a certain direction because I'm gonna keep the online format going while we go back to uh, in-person gatherings just for those that aren't able to gather with us in person um, because we are gonna be outside and in Southern Mississippi there is the heat that factors in so I'm not gonna preach an hour long sermon to you guys um, while you're sitting in 90 to 100 degree and plus weather. We're gonna keep it very, um, the devotional time short instead of having the hour long message, you know, we're gonna really try to capitalize on the fellowship portion of that and have the sermon still be online and available. So while we're doing that simultaneously, it gives me an opportunity to kind of step in a specific direction um, teaching wise. And so I've been praying and I've wanted to do this for some time, but I didn't really feel like it was the timing of the Lord. And I kind of felt, you know, liberty to begin to move in that direction starting today. What I want to do is I want to begin a I don't want to call it a series because it's not like three parts or four parts. It may be 15 parts, it may be two weeks, and then you know we move on to something else. But I really want to kind of begin a journey. And I, you guys might remember I've, I've used that term before. A journey thinking about practical theology. And what I mean by that is in Christianity, um, especially in ministry, you almost have these two circles or these two realms or schools of thought. You have the one side that's just full of the practical pragmatic doers and then you have the other side which is full of the scholarly thinkers and meditators and um, the people that are you know really all about knowing versus all about doing and they're almost at both ends of the spectrum and there's not a lot in the middle and so you have the people who think well we don't need to know these big theological terms and we don't need to know these theological truths we really just need to know what we can do and how we need to do it and how we need to move forward so they're the guys that typically focus on you know qualities of leadership qualities of ministry you know know a little bit do a lot versus the people on the other end of the spectrum are kind of like know a lot and do a little uh, and so on the one side you've got the people that have got huge hearts because they're all about doing and ministering and helping people but they often have little heads and I, I'm being very stereotypical for a reason I'm not saying that everybody that's pragmatic is on this end nor am I saying that everybody that's a scholar is on the other end of the spectrum I'm just using very characters very generalized characters to show you these two spectrums of thought on the one side you have the people that have the huge hearts because they're all about doing and helping people but they think that the greater truths and the deeper truths of the Bible aren't really beneficial aren't really advantageous for the everyday Christian and then on the other side you think that you got the people that have huge heads but little hearts because they're so focused on learning and knowing that they're not really as focused on doing or the love of their fellow man so their big heads prevent them from doing very much at all and then on the other side their big hearts you know they want to do but they're limited by what they can do because they're limited by what they know and so they do things but they don't really know maybe they don't really know all of the reasons to why they're doing them and so what I want to show and what this journey is going to be all about is showing that the two ends of the spectrum don't have to be mutually exclusive that we can know the greater and the deeper truths of the Bible and we can still do and love and take care and minister to our fellow man brothers and sisters and I think that, that balance is where Christianity is at you know Jesus Christ said a statement that we went over before in John chapter 4 where he said you know those that worship the Spirit or worship God will worship him in spirit and truth in spirit and in truth and you know we've talked about you know the greater truths about this being a location and not so much of a how but more of a where conversation but if you think about that spirit and truth 
you could almost take that that they're doing things by the Spirit, but they also have the truth of the Word of God, so they know why they're doing them and they know the greater truths behind why they're doing them. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about practical theology or theology made practical. I've titled this journey um, Shoe Leather Theology. And the reason that I've titled it that, some of you may have heard me make that expression before, but the reason that I've titled it that is because a long time ago I heard a country preacher um, from East Tennessee preach on the shoe leather gospel. And basically what he meant was, I need a gospel that I can walk out. I need a gospel that I can put to use right now today. I don't need abstract information. I need a gospel that I can put to use right now in this moment today. And so what I'm saying is that I want to do shoe leather theology. I want to show you guys how the deeper truths of the Bible, how the greater truths and theological depth can be made practical. And I'm not going to throw a million big terms at you and overwhelm you mentally or I'm not even going to try to show you any of that or how smart I am or anything like that. I want to take a theological truth and I want to make it very simple and I want to show you how that applies to your Christian life today and how that can make you and help you grow into a more mature Christian man or a woman of God. And so to do that, we're going to take one theological truth each week and we're just going to explore it in the Bible and show how that benefits and blesses us today. Okay, can we do that? I mean, does that sound like a fair um, journey to begin? Um, I'm thinking that this is going to be extremely beneficial. I think it's going to be a joy to teach and preach, and I, I hope that it's a joy for you guys and your reception of that as well. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Um, we're going to go there in just a minute, but I want to tell you guys, um, I want to dive into prayer, and then I want to kind of tell you guys what theological aspect we're looking at today. So first, let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray over this message and over this journey that we're taking. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you, God, for the opportunity to be here, the opportunity to preach this gospel. Lord, it's never an opportunity that I take lightly because I know the severity and the immensity behind it. Lord, I know that this is not just a hobby, but this is a calling. And Lord, I pray that your calling proves itself effectual today, that you use me to usher forth a call to a greater level of Christianity. For those that are Christians, that are believers, Lord, that this might be a call to maturity, a call to go deeper, a call to press in further into the gospel and into the truth of Christ. Lord, for those that don't know you, maybe this is an opportunity and this is a presentation of the gospel that will open their eyes and that will show them that Christianity does have something for them and that Christianity is not just something that others do but doesn't apply to them, but that Christianity is the truth of eternity, that it is the power of God unto salvation and that this is the only way, that Jesus Christ is the only way. And God, if at all possible, Lord, I pray that you'd use this word to bring somebody into a life-changing, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that these words that go forth are your words and not my words. I pray that you bless this message, and I pray that you bless those that hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alright, so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Today we're going to be looking at the immutability of God. And I know that's a huge term, and I told you guys I wasn't going to overwhelm you, so I'm going to make that really, really simple. The immutability of God just means the changelessness of God. That God doesn't change. This is taken from um, one scripture, is from Hebrews 13, 8. Another scripture is Malachi 3, 6, which just simply says that the Lord does not change. Another scripture is James 1, 17, which just simply says that God 
doesn't have any variation or shadow of turning, meaning that he doesn't change, that he doesn't vary, that he's always the same. Um, and then, of course, the Hebrews 13:8 scripture, which is going to be the focus of our message today, just simply says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right, so let's dive into the Word. We're going to be looking at the changelessness of God, okay? Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have for he himself has said i will never desert you nor will i forsake you so that we may confidently say the lord is my helper i will not be afraid what will man do to me remember those who led you who spoke the word of god to you and considering the result of their conduct Im imitate their faith jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Amen. All right. So I wanted to read the whole thing in context. I think it's good to read an entire passage before you start picking out verses. That way it gets you a context and you know kind of the framework for which your verse is actually being utilized. Because so often we take a verse out of context and we'll use it for everything possible. But if you take the verse in its context, then it helps you get a greater understanding of what the verse was intended to mean so that you know how you can use it in our present day. So the interesting thing to me when I read this passage is that verse 8 really almost seemingly doesn't fit. You have a lot of instruction about love, about following your leaders, um, and then you have some instruction about the Old Testament and how Jesus' sacrifice was a little bit different and the new altar for the New Testament. But then right smack dab in the middle of all that, you have that verse, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's almost seemingly like it's just dropped, like parachute dropped into the middle of this passage and it doesn't really fit. But then you take it slowly and you begin to look at each verse and apply it to the verse 8 context. Let me explain. Let love of the brethren continue. That's a great statement standalone. But when you look at it through the lens of verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let love of the brethren continue. When we're looking at Jesus being unchanging, then we know that the command and the instructions of Jesus are also unchanging. So if Jesus says, let love one another, by loving one another you will show the world that I, you are in me and that I am in you. Love one another. And this is not a new command I give to you, but the command that was from the beginning that you love one another. For he that loveth his brother um, has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of him, but he that doesn't love or says that he loves God but doesn't hates his brother is a liar and has no truth in him. So Jesus has said and instructed in multiple passages, love one another. Greater love hath no man this than a man lay down his life for his friend. Love one another. 
So if Jesus' command has always been to love one another and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever and he doesn't change, then his command to love one another does not change either. So in this passage you have from verses 1 through 4, you have several different instructions about love. And so when we look at that in the context of Jesus Christ not changing, then we know that the instructions about love do not change either. So it says, let love of the brethren continue. Now I know that in our modern culture, brethren, we look at that as being a boy or a man, you know, he's my brother and she's my sister. But the actual Greek word, and this is one of the only Greek words that I can pronounce correctly. I can pronounce all Greek words, but I just pronounce some of them incorrectly. <laughs> Faith always laughs at me. But this one I can pronounce correctly. It's a huge Greek word. I hope you're ready for it. It's Philadelphia. <laughs> the city of brotherly love. Um, and it simply is a reference to the brotherly love in Christ Jesus or the Christian brotherly love. So it's a word that can apply to brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's not let only love one another if they're men. It's let love your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Love your whole church family. Love the invisible church family, the global church family, the universal church family. Love those that are in Christ Jesus and let that love continue because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then verse 2 is don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Jesus was kind to those uh, that he came across. Um, and that doesn't change for the by this some have entertained angels without knowing it now that can be taken one of two ways you can take that as angels as in angelic beings that you don't know or you can take that word angels as in a minister of the gospel that you may be entertaining or hosting a minister of the gospel or somebody that's called of God and you don't even know that you are um, it can be taken either way but either context the command stays the same because Jesus stays the same. And that's one of the benefits and one of the practical, immediate practical things that you can see about the unchanging, unchangeableness of God is that whatever he has commanded, the command holds true. And whatever he has instructed, the instruction holds true. Whatever Jesus has shown, it, the illustration still rings true because he has not changed. He does not change. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who were ill-treated or afflicted since you yourselves are also in the body. So all of these instructions in marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. All of these instructions about love, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, loving and being hospitable to strangers, remembering those that are in prison, remembering those that are inflicted, loving your spouse and how you relate to your spouse without fornication, without adultery, without cheating on your spouse, all of that is still holding true because Jesus Christ doesn't change. Do you see how verse 8 begins to show a lens for which the whole passage can be interpreted? That the, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the instructions still ring true. Then it gets into verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself, Jesus, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Or as the King James says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? I love this because following through verse 5, 6, and 7, you can kind of almost see a progression. The first aspect is character. Be concerned with your character. Keep your character free from materialism and the love of money and greed and all of those things. You worry about your character. Have good character in the Holy Spirit. And if you do that, then that's going to breed over into this level of content where you're content with what you have because your character is free from materialism and greed and lust and all those wicked desires. So because you've got good character, now you're content in Christ Jesus and you're 
you're confident in that contentment because you know that Jesus Christ is going to take care of you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. You don't have to be afraid because he has you in his the palm of his hands. So your character equals contentment and your contentment becomes confidence. And then when you get into the conversation right here about leaders, he says, consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. And what it's this progression that it's showing is that if you've got character, then your character is going to generate this level of being content in Christ Jesus. And that level of content is going to breed confidence because you know that Christ is always taking care of you. Therefore, he's always going to take care of you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. So you're confident in him through his word. And then that's going to generate this expressed conduct in every area of your life. And so when Paul or I said Paul, but really the author of the Hebrews, because it's unknown, I attribute it to Paul, but others may disagree. Um, when he, the author of the Hebrews, is writing this epistle, he's saying, remember your leaders, remember those who have authority over you in the faith, considering the end of their conduct. So you've seen how they act based upon the character, the content, and the confidence that they have in Christ Jesus. Imitate that conduct. Imitate that faith. Because if you can do that, if you can get that character sorted out, if you can be content, and if you can have that confidence, then you're going to have that same level of conduct in Christ Jesus. So you see almost this progression. And then it gets to that verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And essentially that goes back to our level of hope, our level of expectancy. If Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and those who are above me or have gone before me in the faith, the end of their conduct, this is how it turned out for them because of who Jesus is and what he did for them, then I can know that that's how it's going to turn out for me because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's going to do for me. Because there is no partiality in him. There is no variableness in him. There is no change in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he blessed them, if he loved them, if he provided for them, if he took care of them, then I can know that he's going to bless me. He loves me. He's going to provide for me. He's going to take care of me. He's going to protect me because he does not change and there is no partiality with him. So Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you see how that verse is shedding a light or an illumination on all the verses in this context? That we should conduct ourselves in a certain aspect or in a certain method of love because of who Jesus is and because of how he loved and because his love is unchanged that we should have a certain type of character, that we should have a certain level of content, that we should conduct ourselves and have a certain level of confidence in Him because He does not change. And all of this is defined and begin to be expressed by what I call the key verse. Verse 8 shows the illumination of the whole passage, and verse 9 almost shows a defining aspect to verse 8 in the first part of verse 9. It says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened with grace do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings so what he's saying here is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever so the teaching of Jesus Christ isn't going to suddenly change it isn't going to suddenly shift because he remains the same and so when you have these new aspects come out and say well we don't really have to love one another in that way anymore or we don't have to treat one another with kindness anymore and I'm not saying these are actual I'm just giving you examples of possibilities 
it says, do not be carried away by these aspects, by these strange and varied teachings, whatever they may be, if they contradict or conflict with the teaching of Christ, because the teaching of Christ is not going to change because Christ himself hasn't changed. So if he hasn't changed, then his thoughts on a certain subject are not going to change either. His thoughts towards love are not going to change. They're going to remain the same. So don't be carried away by a varied teaching that comes along saying that you need to love somebody differently than what Christ instructed here in the passage of Hebrews. Don't be carried away when it says that you don't have to be confident anymore. You don't have to have a certain level of character anymore. You can have greed. You can have material desire. You can have this, all this gain. You can try to you know, take advantage of others to get rich and all these different things that come along. Don't be taken away or led astray by those very doctrines because Christ has not changed. Do you see that? Do you, am, I, am I making sense? Am I laying this out in an effective progression that Jesus Christ is the same? So his thoughts towards everything remain the same. His thoughts towards you remain the same. He only has one thought towards you. His thoughts are not conflicted and divided. They are the same that they've always been. That you're precious in his sight. That he loves you. That salvation is readily available to you. And that's not going to change. You are going to have the offer and the ability to participate in the provision of salvation made through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at all times because Jesus Christ remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. That salvation is still available to you. As long as you draw breath, as long as you can make that conscious decision, that salvation is available to you. As long as you have the ability, as long as you're in Christ Jesus, your command is still the same to love one another. As long as you are in Christ Jesus, your command is still the same to be concerned with your character. Don't let your character be overcome with greed. Be concerned with how your conduct appears. Be concerned with being content in Christ, being concerned with being confident in His provision and in His protection. It's because Jesus Christ doesn't say the same. So you see that theological term, that theolog huge theological term, immutability, the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God, has a very practical aspect in the fact that, number one, the teaching of Christ is always going to stay the same. His thoughts about love are going to stay the same. So it's a defense against any kind of new and varied doctrine that comes along. It's a defense against any kind of foreign thing that comes and presents itself against the gospel and tries to say, well, Jesus Christ really isn't divine. Or tries to say, well, you don't really have to be concerned about others. Or you don't really have to minister yourself as an effective Christian. You don't have to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't have to do these things. You don't have to. You don't have to. And all of those aspects that present themselves against the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you know that they're not true because Jesus Christ remains the same. So you know the testimony of Scripture holds true, and you know that Jesus Christ remains the same. So now you have a ready defense against those new doctrines when you say, well, that doesn't line up with Scripture, and I know that Jesus doesn't change, so the Jesus who was revealed in Scripture is the same Jesus now that he was then. Does that make sense? And the second aspect that you can de derive from the immutability of God is that what was available to the apostles, that what was available to the early church is still available to us because Jesus Christ doesn't change. I love, I heard this quote this past week um, by Amy Simple McPherson. Some of you may not know who she is. Amy Simple McPherson was one of the early leaders in the uh, Pentecostal, the charismatic movement um, in Southern California. Um, she was a pretty powerful woman, had a huge following, great influence. She actually kind of developed a fourfold gospel, not dissimilar to the Alliance's fourfold gospel, although A.B. Simpson's did come first. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But she did, um, she was a very powerful leader, and she used to have this quote 
that she would say all the time in defense when someone would say the gifts of the Spirit are not available to the church today. She would always say Jesus Christ is the great I am, not the great I was. That Jesus Christ is the great I am, not the great I was. And for those that you don't know, that's just a reference back. Um, when Moses was in the wilderness, the burning bush, God revealed himself. Moses said, who should I tell um, has sent me to deliver the children of Israel from the power of Pharaoh and the power of bondage in Egypt. And God said, tell them that the great I am has sent you. I am that I am. The great I am has sent you. And Jesus said through the chapter... Uh, Jesus, through the Gospel of John, has several instances where he says, I am, and alludes to the fact that he is God. He is the great I am. You know, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am, I am, I am. I am the vine, you are the branches, um, and so on and so forth. And one of the most powerful of those statements is in a conversation or a debate with the uh, religious leaders about Abraham. And they said, you know, Abraham is both dead and gone. You're not greater than our father Abraham. And Jesus says, Abraham, look forward to my day. And they said, um, and was glad when he seen it. And he said, you're not, they said, you're not 50 years old. How could Abraham look forward to your day? And Jesus says, verily I tell, say unto you, or truly I tell you that before Abraham was, I was. No, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning, I am that I am, the great I am. And so Amy Simple McPherson used that as a defense for the continuation of the gift by saying, Jesus Christ is the great I am, not the great I was. Meaning that he didn't just do it then and he's not going to do it now. So when we think about the immutability of God or the unchangeableness of God, we look, and it's a great day to do it on, on Pentecost Sunday, that we look about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and we look at the speaking in tongues and we look at Peter's shadow healing people on the street and we look at people being raised from the dead and we look at Philip being translated from one location to another location by the power of the Lord and we look at all these demons being cast out and diverse miracles at the hand of Paul. And we look at the people being healed in a crazy, uh, enormous rate. And we look at all of these wonderful signs of God that follow those that believe the mass evangelism, the crazy works. Jesus said that that's still available to us. In John 14, 12, he said, Truly I say to you, the works that I do and greater works you shall do also. And a lot of people want to say, well, the greater works isn't concerned with the miracles, but it's concerned with the level of evangelism. You know, Jesus didn't have television, Jesus didn't have radio, Jesus didn't have internet, so Jesus couldn't have, you know, Facebook lived and reached several multitudes of people all over, you know, the United States or all over the world at one time. So that's the greater works that Jesus was talking about. But to me, even if that was the greater works, which it wasn't, but even if that was the greater works, Jesus doesn't just say, greater works than I do, you'll do also. He said, the works that I do and greater works you'll do also. So we've got to think, well, what works was Jesus doing? He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was raising the dead. He was going forth in the Father's name and performing various miracles according to the will of God. And that stuff is still available. Jesus did it. He sent the apostles to do it. He sent the 70. He sent the 12. And then after his death and his resurrection, um, on Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit fell the apostles went out preached the gospel 
thousands of people were saved. And then they began to walk into various kinds of miracles, performing various works that gave witness and bore witness to the truth that what they were saying wasn't just a different theology or a different doctrine because religious doctrines abounded and they still abound, but it was proof positive that what they were saying was of God and was true. And so if we think about Jesus Christ being immutable, bringing it back into the subject of today's message, if you think about Jesus Christ being immutable, being unchanging, then it stands to reason that if he operated in a certain way at the beginning of the early church, that he would still be operating in that same capacity in our day to day. But the problem is, is that we don't want to believe or we can't get our minds around or we can't explain how those operations come to pass. We can't explain how somebody could possibly be healed instantly. We can't explain how somebody could be raised from the dead. We can't explain all of these various visible miracles. And so we have trouble believing them and all the the currency of the kingdom of God is faith. And so if we're trying to do these things without faith, then we're not going to get very far. Jesus says that if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you can move the mountain. So we're trying to say, well, something must have changed in God because we aren't doing the same level of works and signs and wonders that the apostles were doing. But I don't think that the change was in God because he's unchanging. I think that the change was in us as the church. The number one, our devotion life doesn't look anything like the devotion life of the apostles. Number two, our faith doesn't look anything like the faith of the apostles. Our effort doesn't look anything like the effort of the apostles. And I'm not saying across the board, I'm not saying specifically every individual, I'm saying that there have been exceptions, but for the most part, as a generalization, the church, by and large, does not have the level of faith, the level of devotion, and the level of work and risk that's being put forth like the apostles had. And that might be shifting as our climate, cultural climate shifts, but we're trying to attribute our lack of evidence in the works to a change in God. But we can see here by this theological doctrine of immutability that God does not change, that His operation has not changed that He still remains the same, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that Jesus Christ is the great I am, not the great I was. And so therefore, if He operated according to that manner then, then He must operate according to that manner now. And so therefore, that's why we put forth and we urge you to believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, believe in things like the speaking of in tongue, other tongues, and believe in things like the gifts of healing, and believe in things like the word of knowledge and the word of... Uh, wisdom and believe in things like the discernment of various kinds of spirits and we ask you and we urge you and we compel you God has not changed therefore these gifts are still available and today what better day to look at that than Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit was received and speaking in tongues came out active and I've said speaking in tongues several times so I want to throw this out there and clear this up I do not think that speaking in tongues is the definite article, only evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think it can be a evidence or an evidence, but I do not think that it's the only evidence. I think that the only universal evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a greater level of sanctification. That holiness is the universal evidence, not speaking in tongues. Although some would debate that doctrine, that's not what I'm here to do. I just wanted to explain that so that you got my drift because I kept saying speaking in tongues because speaking in tongues is an important aspect of it. It's not for everybody. God gives gifts severally as he will, but it is an important aspect. 
And so as we look at this doctrine of immutability, as we think about the unchangingness of God, the fact that God doesn't change, that God doesn't vary, that He always remains the same, does that mean that these gifts have suddenly stopped? No, that encourages us to believe that these gifts have not stopped, that these gifts have continued on, and that the operation of the Holy Spirit remains the same. If Jesus Christ doesn't change, as we see in Hebrews 13.8, if the Father doesn't change, as we see in Malachi 3.6 and in James 1.17, the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead, has not changed either. That God does not change, so they all operate in the same capacity that they've always operated. Now, a popular objection to this doctrine, and hopefully I'm not boring you guys to tears, but I, I feel the need to go a little bit further. A popular objection to this doctrine of immutability or unchanging, unchangeableness of God is the fact that some will use this to say that God doesn't change His mind or that God doesn't change His feeling towards a certain thing. Or... On the other end, some will use it and say, use scripture that show God repenting of an action or changing his mind about something to show that God cannot be immutable because he changes his, changed his mind. Now, that is most certainly not what immutability means. Immutability is not saying that God never changes his mind. Immutability is not saying that God cannot repent of an action. And when I say repent, it just means turn from an action. We can see very clearly that God does change His mind in Scripture. For example, one of the most popular is Moses' intercession concerning the children of Israel. The children of Israel had just been delivered from Egypt. They did various sins, complaining, murmuring. They built a golden calf and began to worship it and give it credit for bringing them out of Egypt, even though that was the work of God. And God just told Moses, He said, Leave me alone. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth and I'm going to start a new lineage through you. And Moses pleads with God and intercedes on their behalf and God repents of the evil, and when I say evil, just the uh, punishment and the judgment that he had um, sought to inflict upon the children of Israel. Now, God changed his mind, but he did not change his nature. For example, God's nature is always towards holiness. He just has long-suffering with those that commit sin. So was his nature changed towards the children of Israel in their sin? No, he was still angry with their sin. He was still displeased with their sin. Their st sin still deserved a punishment and the wrath of God, which it was received and taken out on Christ later at the crucifixion. You can see the judgment of God and the wrath of God and God's anger towards sin poured out upon Christ at the crucifixion. So God's nature and anger towards sin did not change. God simply postponed the judgment that He had meant for the children of Israel through the intercession of Moses. So He was going to take out and inflict His justice on the children of Israel at that moment. However, Moses interceded and God, not willing to go against Moses are not willing to take Moses' Moses's name out of the book, not willing to defile his own glory, repented of that action or returned from that action, and then 
later inflicted wrath upon sin. So God's nature didn't change. Nothing about God changed other than the fact that what he intended to do, he backed off from and accomplished in another way. So God's nature did not change. So God's nature remained immutable. However, God was able to change his mind and still remain immutable. And that's a very important thing to understand because when you talk about the unchangeableness of God, people will bring up scripture like Moses changing God's mind and say, how can God remain unchangeable if God changed his mind here? And then the second objection, and hopefully, again, hopefully I'm not boring you to tears. A second objection is how God operates according to the covenant that he's in. For example, we know that in the new covenant, we don't have to offer bulls and sacrifices um, to God anymore for the covering of our sin because we have the sacrifice, Christ Jesus, and his blood upon the heavenly mercy seat that atones for our sin. So can God be unchangeable when he's changed the method of operation from the old covenant to the new? And the answer is again, no, God remains unchanged even though the operation changed from one covenant to the other. And here is the reason why. Because we think Old Covenant, New Covenant. We think end of Old Covenant, establishment of New Covenant. And we don't really realize that that's not actually the case. We don't realize that the Bible starts out with a progressive revelation leading up to the New Covenant, meaning that in the, in the garden, before Adam and Eve were ever formed, before Eden was ever made, before the world was formed, Jesus Christ had already been slain as a lamb slain in the mind of God. You can see that in the book of Revelation. And so God had known about the fall before the fall ever happened. God knew about the Old Testament before the Moses ever received the law on Mount Sinai. God knew about the coming of the new covenant. Everything God knew from beginning to end, he sits in eternity, not time. He knew about the entire unfolding of events. So when we look at the establishment of the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and then the new covenant in Christ Jesus, and we think about all of those progressions and how God operates differently in each of those covenants, and then we get to the new covenant, covenant, which is a different operation entirely, we think, well, God's changed from each covenant. But the truth is, is God hasn't changed. It's what's called a progressive revelation, meaning that God, from the beginning, saw the new covenant and everything was simply working and building towards that. That's why we say, we talk about types and shadows in the old covenant that point towards the coming of Jesus Christ, that the law was simply a forerunner for Jesus Christ, that the law was working as a revelation to reveal man's lostness, man's sinfulness, man's depravity, to show the necessity of a savior, that the law was put in place as a school teacher to bring us about that knowledge and that when grace came in that the law and the school teacher was no longer necessary that Jesus Christ became the fulfillment so Jesus isn't just the end of the law he's rather the fulfillment of the law and that Jesus doesn't end the old covenant he fulfills it and the old covenant works to establish the new that's why Paul says things like through faith do we abolish the law. God forbid, through faith we establish the law, meaning that through faith in Christ Jesus we can see the truth of the law clearly. We can see the purpose of the law clearly. So we see that God did not change from the beginning before Adam and Eve were created, when Adam and Eve sinned, when Abraham came on the scene, when Noah was on the scene, when Moses was on the scene, and then when Jesus Christ came on the scene. God never changed. He remained the same all the way through. And so that helps us when we, people try to challenge this doctrine of the unchangeableness of God to understand God never changed. Everything was working towards the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that now in the revelation of Jesus Christ, as Hebrews 1 suggests, Hebrews 1 starts off and it says, God, who at various times and in diverse manners 
um, revealed himself through the law, under the fathers, through the law and the prophets, but now has he spoken through Jesus, his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we see that, we see that Jesus Christ is the final word. He's the final say. So that when Jesus Christ comes, death, burial, resurrection, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that that's the established means of the church. That's why I can say, well, they operated with through the Holy Spirit then, it should operate now. Even though I can't say the way that it operated in Moses' time is how it operates now, I can say how it operates in the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is how it operates now, is because that Jesus Christ is the final word, and the Holy Spirit was the promise of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the establishment of the church, the Holy Spirit and the acts of the apostles and things like that. That's why I can say we operate the way that they operated because we're in the same dispensation, we're in the same covenant. That It hasn't changed then. The method, the operation hasn't changed from then till now. God's operation was different but in Moses because the revelation of Christ hadn't been completed. The, the progressive revelation hadn't come to a head at that point in time. But now that it has, we know that by the unchangeableness of God, we have all of these things available. By the unchangeableness of God, we can operate the way that we've always operated. By the unchangeableness of God, we can walk in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. By the unchangeableness of God, we can fight and we can battle and wage war with these false doctrines that come against us because we can simply say that this... Our Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the Logos. He is the Word of God revealed. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we have the canonization of the Word. And that if it's not in this, that it does not align with the Word of God. So when someone comes with a false doctrine, we can say, No, it has to be here. It has to be here. If it's not here, then it's not true. God doesn't change. And this is what He revealed for all time. And so if it's not in here, God hasn't changed. He's, we're not accepting new and false and various doctrines. Our heart is established in grace. That's Hebrews 13, 9. Our heart is established in grace because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the two principles, the two application points that I want you to walk away from this, even if I've confused you and I've covered too much information in a short period of time, the two applicable points is that because God does not change, we have a defense for doctrine that comes in that does not align with the Word of God. We can love people the way that God tells us to love people in the Word of God. We minister to people and to one another the way that God tells us in His Word. We treat our spouses, our wives, our husbands the way that God's Word tells us to because God does not change and His thoughts about those matters does not change. So when a false doctrine comes in, we have a defense for that because God does not change. And the second point is that we know that what was promised in the book of Acts and the other epistles and in the Gospels through Jesus Christ is available to us and that we can walk in that because God does not change and that His covenant then is the same covenant that we're in now. And if the Holy Spirit moved on them and they healed the sick and they raised the dead and they spoke with other tongues and they prophesied with words of wisdom and words of knowledge and they had great levels of faith, that those things are available to us now because we are in the same covenant and God has not changed from then till now. Remember that quote that we shared with you. Amy Simple McPherson said, God's the great I am, not the great I was. So because He was or He was the great I am in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they did those things. He's the great I am now, and so therefore we can do the same things and accomplish the same things that they accomplished. If we have faith, if we truly believe, and if we walk according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope that you can see this shoe leather theology, that the immutability of God is not just an abstract theological term that you have for the scholars and that keeps them a paycheck coming but the immutability of God the unchangeableness of God is a very practical term 
that we can apply to our lives and walk out in our everyday Christian walk. All right, let's close out in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to preach your gospel. I hope that I've done so effectively. I hope that I've done so clearly. Lord Jesus, I would just ask one thing, that they would take two simple points, a defense for false doctrine and an encouragement to walk out in power and authority by the power of the Holy Ghost. Those two points that they could apply to their life knowing that you are unchanging. Lord Jesus, there are so many different things that we could pull from the immutability of God, but I'm just asking for two simple points that they can apply to their life and that they can walk this thing out and that it helps them become more mature in their Christian faith. And Lord, for those who may listen to this who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I would pray this, that they would see the unchangingness of God and know that because your desire was for the lost and the broken and the undone and the busted and the disgusted and the wicked and those who had fallen short, if that was your desire then and you said on this earth that you did not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance, then they can know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that your call is still to call sinners to repentance, to call sinners to turn from their life of wickedness and to come into a saving relationship.